Toussaint Louverture led the only successful slave revolt in history, yet his rebellion is far from well known. For comparison's sake, we'll begin this episode with a look at the most famous of all slave revolts, that of Spartacus. The setting for his story was Rome, a location that has captivated Western history for centuries. We tend to think favorably about Rome, but the fact remains that it was a massive slaving state. During the age of Spartacus, Rome was home to six million people, with one-third of them living in a state of bondage. Historian Frank McLinn reveals to us that slavery acted as a break on technology in Rome, so that in more than a thousand years of history, technical progress was very limited. After all, why discover and innovate and be ingenious if one could easily extract an economic surplus from slaves? There were so many slaves in Rome that it became impossible to find enough work for them to complete. Thus, a multitude of them were sacrificed for the entertainment of the Roman people in the spectacle known as the gladiatorial games. Despite the ability to earn fame for their actions within the Colosseum, nearly all gladiators were slaves. This was because they were infamous, or below the law, which meant that they weren't worthy of protection from the law. There are a few infamous groups still around today. Illegal immigrants in America are one of the easiest to understand examples. Their plight hopefully helps you to understand why no one would voluntarily go below the law. If I were robbed in America, I would go to the police, who would take up my case and hopefully find the perpetrator. I would leave the station and patiently wait for a call about my case. If an illegal immigrant were to go to the same police station to report a similar robbery, they would likely be arrested on the spot for the crime of being there illegally. While it is possible that the police might still go and arrest the mugger, justice wouldn't ever come for the victim, because the American legal system doesn't protect them, as their status means that they are beneath the protections that the law offers. All gladiators swore an oath to endure to be bound, beaten, burned, and put to the sword. Essentially, this meant that their life was forfeit and wholly given over to their owner, who could toss it away in the Colosseum or butcher them to feed the assortment of animals that were kept on display. To put it another way, a male gladiator had about the same societal standing as a female prostitute. To put it crudely, you might get some enjoyment out of them, but you weren't going to invite them over to your family's next dinner party. As you might expect, few free individuals signed up for such treatment. Spartacus is a name common to a number of kings in the Black Sea region causing many to speculate that Spartacus was a noble who had found himself to have been enslaved unfairly. This reading of history is a bit disturbing, though, as it unintentionally reinforces the notion that leadership can only come from the nobility. We don't know much of a backstory about the man, however, and most historians push back against the noble leading the slave revolt mantra. These historians instead believe that he was a mere foot soldier who had deserted in order to fend for himself through a life of banditry. After getting arrested, he was purchased and sent to one of Rome's finest gladiatorial schools. The Romans, like all slavers, feared revolts. Yet before Spartacus's effort, all revolts had been led by peasants and herders. Precautions were still made, as the gladiators weren't allowed to carry any weapons into their dormitories for fear of suicide or breakouts. When it came time to perform, they fought in the Colosseum beneath the watchful eye of double companies of Praetorian guards. Spartacus planned his revolt during the harvesting season in 73 BCE. A staggering 200 gladiators were involved in the plot 
making it a minor miracle that the authorities weren't tipped off. Equipped with kitchen knives, the trained fighters dispatched the guards of their school. Once outside, they found a wagon full of proper weapons and sauntered off towards freedom. Fearing an overreaction, the Roman authorities acted meekly, sending a local militia after the outlaws. The subsequent rout resulted in the former gladiators adding armor to their growing arsenal. 3,000 troops were soon dispatched from the capital as local officials began to fear that the story regarding the slave revolt would spread to the fields. Spartacus lured the soldiers sent to capture him into a narrow one-way gorge high in the mountains. Lowering himself and his men with vines at the last minute, they snuck around back and turned the trap against their pursuers. A legend emerged from the victory, and rural slaves began to flock to his banner, identifying for him the geographical advantages of land that they had been obliged to work for decades. They also showed him where the most valuable jewels were in the houses that they had been compelled to continually clean. Cooks, herdsmen, and blacksmiths all joined the rebellion. Spartacus's crew successfully ambushed two more Roman forces that had been sent out to subdue the rebellion. Finally, both Roman consuls led armies against the former gladiator. But only after a year of Spartacus's makeshift army surviving off of the land as though the gladiator were an ancient form of Robin Hood. McLinn tells us that the previous time such a thing had occurred was when the Roman Republic had been forced to marshal against Carthage's Hannibal, who had brought an army of war elephants across the Alps. Although most weren't formally trained, Spartacus's ragtag army had swollen to 70,000 strong, making his one of the largest revolts in history. Finally, the two sides clashed, and Spartacus's right-hand man was the first to fall, along with two-thirds of the men and women who stood with him in seeking freedom. Spartacus heroically broke through the encirclement maneuver, leading his men in an uphill charge to break free. While they were surely brave, his men were not disciplined, and the long, hard march ahead of a pursuing foe was too much for them and his army soon fell by the wayside, succumbing to internal urges to loot, rape, and pillage the countryside of their oppressors. But Spartacus wasn't finished. After sacrificing 3,000 Roman prisoners in an effort to appease his right-hand man's vengeful ghost, he continued on, knowing that he would be crucified if caught alive. Such was a favorite torture device of his pursuers. Although the practice of nailing someone to a beam had been learned from the Persians, the Romans added the horizontal slab, allowing for the arms to be stretched out across the T. McLinn reveals to us that there are no authenticated historical cases of crucifixion where the victim died in less than 48 hours. Here is how the historian explains the suffering of those forced to hang on the cross writing that death usually occurred as the result of slow tectonic cramps brought on by spasmodic muscular contractions. The cramps began in the serrated muscles of the forearm, then extended into the whole arm, the upper body, the abdomen, and the legs. Meanwhile, the position of the body impeded the circulation of the blood, producing, to use medical terminology, progressive carbohexia and heart block. Death was extremely slow, as the contraction of the muscles and the enforced immobility placed an enormous strain on the heart. The pulse slowed and the blood stagnated in the vessels. The heart could no longer eliminate waste matter, the muscles went into spasm, and the blood ceased to circulate and carried less and less oxygen to the lungs, being increasingly contaminated by carbon dioxide. All medical research suggests that the victim would feel as though he was suffocating. Freedom was within sight for the former gladiator, 
but he surprised everyone by turning his army around to head back to the heart of Rome, seeking to succeed where Hannibal's elephants had failed over the course of a 15-year war. As their armies had failed, the Roman leaders turned to the people, offering vast riches to anyone who could bring the head of Spartacus, who now appeared to be more of a revolutionary leader than an upstart slave. McLinn, however, doubts this was the case, writing that what is absolutely clear is that Spartacus, his later champions notwithstanding, was never a social revolutionary, an early egalitarian Jacobin, communist, or proletarian leader. He simply wanted to get back to his homeland and the simplicity of his earlier life. In the third year of the war, Rome sent Crassus, one of the two men who would enable the rise of Julius Caesar. Crassus is a fascinating figure, as the name became synonymous with wealth. The Roman patrician made a fortune employing a personal fire brigade, which was on hand and waiting for the moment when Crassus would buy up literally burning buildings from owners who lacked insurance. Only once his rock-bottom price was met would he grant permission to his men to extinguish the blaze. Crassus moved his Roman forces methodically against Spartacus, refusing to fall for the slaves' attempt to bait his forces into breaking ranks. To ensure that the Romans fought with as much intensity as those who desired their freedom, he reintroduced the idea of decimation into the corps. According to the practice of decimation, any army unit that was deemed deficient, disobedient, or lacking in courage would have one out of every ten of their soldiers selected randomly to be cudgeled to death by their former comrades. Unable to outthink the man, Spartacus put out peace feelers, but wasn't even given the respect of a reply. Keep in mind that to Crassus, Spartacus, despite his victories, remained beneath the law. Spartacus's army managed to escape to the Mediterranean, but were denied passage for fear of upsetting the Romans. While some tried their hands at making rafts, Spartacus was forced to pitch camp, allowing Crassus to catch up to him. Despite being eager for a populous victory on the same level as the one that Pompey had just achieved in Spain, the consul took his time. According to the Roman historian Plutarch, Crassus constructed a wall, complete with trench and paling that would cut the gladiators off from the mainland, resulting in their inevitable starvation. The ditch that followed the wall was 15 feet wide and 15 feet across for 35 miles. Although Plutarch was likely exaggerating the size, all historians agree that it was a mistake for Spartacus to only attack after the wall was complete. Yet the slaves did exactly that, managing to break through the fortifications during a winter storm by filling the ditch with the bodies of butchered Roman prisoners. The timely arrival of another Roman legion limited Spartacus's options as Crassus continued to methodically pursue him. Eventually, the final battle came, and I'll let McLinn describe the last speech of the former gladiator who rode to the front of his army to inform his men that now it was do or die, stating that if they won the battle, he could have the pick of his horses. But if he lost, he would not need one. With that, he slew the horse on the spot. This was the equivalent of Cortez burning his ships to signal to his men that there would be no retreat. In this instance, however, it proved to be a mistake. Although Spartacus's body was never found, it is clear that the former slave-turned-rebellion leader fell during the battle alongside his men, as Crassus's Romans slew six for every one soldier that they lost. Seeking to make an example out of the rebels, the Roman legions hunted down and crucified more than 6,000 of the gladiators' followers. Spartacus's rebellion, the third of Rome's servile wars, was extremely successful, 
yet it did little to nothing to change Rome. Rather than inspiring freedom, his rebellion helped to bring Crassus and Pompey, two-thirds of Caesar's triumvirate, to power. The Roman Republic died beneath the rule of Julius Caesar, who brought about the birth of imperial dictatorship beneath his successors. While Spartacus's rebellion was ultimately a failure, it served to create an archetype of a slave seeking justice that remains to this day. In fact, among the many nicknames of Louvator was that of Black Spartacus. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series regards Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the Haitian Revolution. Episode number one, His Life as a Slave. The modern-day countries of Haiti and the Dominican Republic make up the island of Hispaniola, named so after Christopher Columbus's second voyage to what was collectively known as the New World. Put together, the two nations represent the most populous island in the West Indies. Although Haiti is only the size of the American state of Maryland, the island that it resides on is the second largest in the Caribbean, with only Cuba having a greater landmass. Our best guess has the island being settled sometime around 5000 BCE, with farming communities having cropped up 1700 years before Columbus had sailed the ocean blue. The dominant group were the Taino, and at the time of the European incursion, the island was home to somewhere between 100,000 to several million. Within a mere 25 years of Columbus's arrival, only 32,000 survived, their deaths the result of enslavement, massacre, and disease. The mortality rate, which deserves the label of genocide, is even more disturbing, considering that the Taino were known to have been an inventive people. The Smithsonian Magazine provides an example of their foreknowledge, writing that they had mastered extracting poisonous cyanide so that they could utilize yucca as medicine. Their culture had experienced centuries of inter-tribal conflict, which resulted in the development of pepper gas for warfare. They had also developed a complex economy, intricate sports, and musical instruments. But that all ended with the arrival of Columbus, a man who detailed his respect for the Taino by stating, with 50 men we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we wanted. Although the purpose of his first voyage across the Atlantic was discovery, Columbus's second jaunt across the Atlantic fully intended to subjugate the natives. He came with 17 ships and more than 1,200 men, most of whom were trained killers the likes of which Crassus would have been proud of. The bloodshed began in retaliation for the death of 39 of Columbus's men who had been left behind from his prior voyage. In the interim between voyages, one of his men had been found guilty by the Taino of sexual assault. As punishment, the aggrieved tribe had slaughtered the 39 Europeans to the last man. The conflict that followed in the wake of the Italians' arrival marked the beginning of colonialism in the New World. Thus, from the very beginning, the European imperial idealism about spreading their advanced culture was proven false by their violent actions. Columbus constructed the city of Isabella, and set about to create a harsh quota system designed to extract gold and cotton from the native population. Failure to reach the exceptionally high quotas meant losing an appendage. He soon returned to Spain, presenting the Spanish crown with holes filled to the brim of thousands of locals designated for enslavement. 
but Queen Isabella rejected the notion, claiming the natives as her citizens while reaffirming that no Spaniard would be subjected to the evils of enslavement. But as 80% of the island's population died off, it became clear that someone would have to do the work in order to make the colonization of the New World profitable for the old. Historian Howard French tells us that hurricanes serve as an apt metaphor for transatlantic slavery. Just as those systems form on the western fringes of Africa before hurling their energy upon the distant shores of the Americas, the mass traffic in Africans violently yoked together the millions of victims gathered on its western shores before scattering them in the distant hemisphere to the west in sometimes random-seeming ways. Enslaved Africans soon flooded the shores of the Caribbean. Because few women joined the Spanish's imperial mission, the island's early settlers oftentimes had sexual relations with the enslaved Africans, the vast majority of which ought to be considered non-consensual. The byproduct of such relations created the island's biracial Creole population. French writes that Creoles became the grease that made the commercial and social machinery in the Caribbean function. They were the ultimate go-betweens. The hero of our story wasn't an empowered white, nor was he a member of the Creoles. Rather, he was a member of the lowest social group on the island, an enslaved black African. Louvatore's family ran amiss of the fiscal military state, as his grandfather is believed to have been a powerful ruler in West Africa, making Toussaint, like Spartacus, possibly descended from a line of kings. But no one was safe in West Africa during the slave trade era, and the king's son, known to us by the westernized name of Hippolyte, was captured by the kingdom of Dahomey, and eventually sold alongside his wife for the tidy price of 300 cowrie shells. He ended up in the hands of the French, who had a preference for slaves from the Alada region of West Africa, falsely believing them to be better suited to sugar work than others. Thus far, we have only spoken of the island in terms of Spanish rule. But in 1697, the French received a portion of Hispaniola after pirates had successfully managed to establish the colony of saint Domingue. That they did so through squatters' rights reveals how little the European powers thought about the New World at the turn of the 18th century. Since little gold had been found on the island, the Spanish were more than happy to be rid of the territory, ceding it to the buccaneers named so due to their penchant for eating wild hogs over open fires. These buccaneers, or open firemen, formed the basis for the establishment of the most important western colony in France's possession. A small Spanish-French war in Europe soon made French ownership of the western third of the island official. Thus, when Toussaint's father arrived in Haiti, the Latin name of Hippolyte was forcibly thrust upon him, and he was subsequently obligated to convert to Christianity, a requirement that was believed to aid in a slave's assimilation to their new life of servitude. Hippolyte was forcibly separated from his children as well as his wife, who passed away shortly after arriving at her new home roughly 200 miles from her husband. Planters referred to this transition period with the term seasoning, as new arrivals adapted to their foreign work assignments, food, and language. Toussaint's father managed to adjust, marrying an enslaved woman who had been given the name of Pauline. Toussaint was the first of many kids from the coupling, Historian Philippe Girard, one of our main sources for this series, tells us that according to Haitian traditions, the midwife foresaw the child's destiny 
and raised him skyward, incanting, Boy, whites will kneel before you. West Africans weren't the only ones compelled into work, as the island did bring in white indentured servants. But the overlords quickly realized that the African workers tended to survive longer and worked harder. Once it was discovered that sugar grew fantastically on the island, demand for workers skyrocketed. And Haiti imported more slaves than the entirety of the United States. In fact, the island was responsible for 80% of all the slaves sold in France's American empire. This doesn't mean that Toussaint's father landed in a positive situation. Still, Gerard points out that had Hippolyte landed in South Carolina instead of Haiti, Toussaint Louverture would have lived through the American Revolution instead of the Haitian Revolution. Had that happened, it is highly unlikely that we would have ever known his name. His birth coincided with Haiti achieving the status of fastest growing and most profitable of all the colonies of the Americas. Toussaint was born in 1743, the same year as Thomas Jefferson, a contemporary leader and slave owner of the Americas. By the time that Toussaint turned 20 years old, the population of the French colony had more than doubled. Historian Jeremy Popkin explains that in the wake of the Seven Years' War, known in America as the French and Indian War, French plantation owners cashed in on Europe's seemingly unquenchable appetite for sugar and coffee. Imports of enslaved Africans to the island averaged over 15,000 a year in the late 1760s. Sugar is an easily consumed commodity in the modern world, but to the contemporaries of Toussaint Louverture, it was a godsend. It wasn't that sugar was suddenly discovered. That occurred in Asia around 4000 BCE. It also wasn't because Europeans finally got their hands on it. After all, one of Alexander the Great's generals described it as the plant that brings forth honey without the bees in 325 BCE. The delightful sweetener had become common throughout Europe after the secret of its production came as part of the treasure hauled back to England from the First Crusade. Rather, the colonization of the Americas and the subjugation of Africa's most productive people meant that sugar could finally be sold at prices low enough for mass consumption. The drop in price was dramatic, as a pound of sugar in 1600 England cost 33 pence. By 1750, the price had stabilized at a mere 8 pence. The fact that this occurred, along with what was an absurdly healthy profit margin, meant that sugar, and not gold, soon became the primary driver of European expansion. Columbus immediately recognized that the climate of Haiti was ideal for the cultivation of sugar. His father-in-law was a sugar farmer, and the explorer made sure to bring the crop with him on his second voyage across the Atlantic. The New York Times tells us that this white gold, as it was known, turned the Americas upside down. Professor Justin Roberts points out that wherever sugar was grown, the crop brought with it the same significant transformations, including a majority population of enslaved peoples of African descent, higher rates of mortality, lower rates of fertility, the convention of capital on large plantations, and sweeping ecological changes, such as the elimination of timber and the erosion of soils. Sugar profits made the Caribbean world, in particular, a site of intense imperial rivalry. The addictive nature of sugar is undeniable, but the truth of how addictive it is is quite shocking, as shown in a Connecticut college study, which found that sugar, in the form of an Oreo cookie, activated more neurons in the pleasure center of the rat's brain than cocaine did. 
the other major finding of the study wasn't quite as astounding, namely that like humans, the rats would eat the filling of the Oreo first. That study was part of the reason that the head of the Dutch health department stated for the record that sugar may be the most dangerous drug of our time. We, however, just suffer from the effects of consumption. Slaves on the plantation had it far worse, as sugar cultivation is back-breaking work in unforgiving climates. A French observer watching the work on Haiti described it in the following manner. The sun blazed down on the enslaved blacks' heads. Sweat poured from all parts of their bodies. Their limbs, heavy from the heat, tired by the weight of their hose and the resistance of heavy soil, which was hardened to the point where it broke the tools, nonetheless struggled to overcome all obstacles. They worked in glum silence. All their faces showed their misery. From that account, one can see why the free men of the colony weren't willing to do the work themselves. And for those who believe that the free market will always guide workers to the jobs, keep in mind that Georgia's draconian immigration law passed in 2011, which eliminated illegal migrant workers in the fields. Comedian Stephen Colbert answered the call of farmers who sought to replace those workers with Americans who would accept the same pay for the work. The comedian then proceeded to testify in front of Congress in his ultra-Republican persona from the days of the Colbert Rapport, stating for the record, I will admit I started my workday with preconceived notions of migrant labor. But after working with these men and women, picking beans, packing corn for hours on end, side by side in the unforgiving sun, I have to say, and I do mean this sincerely, please don't make me do this again. It is really, really hard. For one thing, when you are picking beans, you have to spend all day bending over. It turns out, and I did not know this, most soil is at ground level. If we can put a man on the moon, why can't we make the earth waist high? Come on, where's the funding? This brief experience gave me some small understanding of why so few Americans are clamoring to begin an exciting career as a seasonal migrant field worker. So what is the answer, the comedian continues. Now I am a free market guy. Normally, I would leave this to the invisible hand of the market. But the invisible hand of the market has already moved over 84,000 acres of production and over 22,000 farm jobs to Mexico and shut down over a million acres of U.S. farmland due to the lack of available labor. Because apparently, even the invisible hand doesn't want to pick beans. Improved legal status might allow immigrants recourse if they are abused. And it just stands to reason to me that if your coworker can't be exploited, then you are less likely to be exploited yourself. And that itself might improve pay and working conditions on these farms. And eventually, Americans may consider taking these jobs again. Or maybe that is crazy. Maybe the easier answer is just have scientists develop vegetables that pick themselves. The genetic engineers over at Fruit of the Loom have made great strides in human-fruit hybrids. The point is, we have to do something, because I am not going back out there. At this point, I break into a cold sweat at the sight of a salad bar. Jokes aside, there is a direct causal link between the rise of sugar plantations and the importation of slaves. Popkin tells us that in 1687, there were just 4,411 whites and 3,358 enslaved blacks in Haiti. By 1715, as a result of the growth of sugar production, the figures were 6,668 whites and 35,351 blacks. Eighteen years later, the white population had grown significantly to 32,650 whites, but the number of those enslaved jumped to a quarter of a million only to double again within the decade of the 1780s. In Haiti, there were 730 sugar plantations, which essentially maxed out all of the flat, well-watered land that the nation had to offer. 
Not wanting to miss out on the rush, late arriving colonists bought up the slopes of the island's steep mountains in order to plant coffee trees, another legal drug that acts in the same manner as cocaine does. By the 18th century, Haiti and the entire island of Santo Domingo had become a slave society, something that Popkin defines as one in which the institution of slavery was central to every aspect of life. The historian makes sure to distinguish that a slave society was different from a society with slaves, in which slaves were a relatively small part of the population. The free citizens of the colony, being so few in population, co-opted individuals in order to make sure that the slave society functioned in an efficient manner. After all, a ratio of seven slaves to every one freedman was a society which could be overthrown quite easily. Privileged slaves, known as commandeers or drivers, directed the daily work in the fields. They oversaw the men cutting the cane so that it could be stirred continuously in boiling cauldrons for hours on end, as well as the women who were forced to feed the stalks into crushing machines, a job which regularly sawed off the arms of the ladies working the bulky, unpredictable machines. The commandors were the harshest of the overlords. Desperate to hold on to their privileged positions of power, within a society that saw them as easily replaceable property. Privilege for the enslaved came with good behavior, as enslaved black workers were responsible for producing most of their own food from small private plots bequeathed by their owner. Thus, the early social structure of the island directly resembled medieval feudal England. These land plots rarely resulted in enough food to starve off chronic malnutrition, the result of which meant that the life expectancy of a slave in Haiti was a mere seven to ten years. Despite this, plantation owners discouraged marriage among the captives for fear of unintentionally installing a backbone among those that they had opted to oppress. Plus, it remained cheaper to import a slave across the heinous Middle Passage than to raise one from birth. Having a child didn't spare the mother from her tasks, as mere days after giving birth, they were expected to return to the fields with their newborn on their back. The children that were born were often the result of forced sexual encounters between master and slave. These Creole children were born free and over time made up a significant portion of the population, creating, in the words of the French, a tricolor nation of whites, blacks, and creoles. Additionally, some slaves were freed in gratitude for their service, but this was a minority as the mathematical odds amounted to a mere 1%. The presence of both free blacks and biracial citizens resulted in slave owners branding their initials into their property so that they could better identify runaways who sought to hide among the free population of the island. It would be flippant to describe anyone trapped in the bondages of slavery as lucky. But there are degrees of luck, and Toussaint happened to have been born to a master that was more tolerant than most of their peers. On May 20, 1743, Toussaint took his first breath as a slave, the product of his enslaved parents Hippolyte and Pauline. He was the first of eight children born to the couple under the control of the Breda family. The Breda plantation was located in Haute de Cap, situated centrally along the northern coast. As I mentioned, his owners were more lenient than the typical slaver, as they allowed Louvatore's family to remain together and tended to not issue vast amounts of either harsh or unpredictable discipline. Toussaint himself said that although I have been a slave, I have never received reproaches from my masters. 
The community that he was born to was a tight-knit one of a lot of dissent, which allowed for individuals to educate themselves during their limited free time. Pierre-Baptiste Simon, Toussaint's godfather, taught the young man how to read and write. He became an avid reader and consumed whichever books he could lay his hands on. The Breda family allowed him and other interested slaves to borrow books from their extensive personal library. He was particularly drawn to literature about plants and herbs that could be used as medicine, as well as the works of the French Enlightenment philosophers. One such book was Abbey Renault's The Two Indies, a prophetic book that warned of an imminent anti-imperial slave revolution that was merely waiting for a capable leader. Knowing the end of Toussaint's story, it is easy to imagine the young man sitting there with the book on his lap, envisioning himself as the man to place those shoes upon his feet while perusing the words of the Frenchman. By the age of 20, he had become fluent in three languages, French, Latin, and Creole. Haiti's two official languages remain French and Creole, the latter of which is used to describe a simplified version of another language. The book Language and Linguistics explains further, introducing the concept of pidgin, or the combination of two or more languages, which sometimes occurs in trade contact, multi-ethnic, or refugee situations, where participants need a functioning common language. Sometimes the pidgin becomes stable and established, and comes to be spoken as a mother tongue by children. The language has then become a creole, which quickly develops in complexity and is used in all functional settings. The book continues pointing out that the process of turning a pigeon into a creole is called creolization. French Creole remains spoken by 90 to 95% of the populace of Haiti. With so many languages being mixed together during the Middle Passage, enslaved persons had to confront a new reality where few around them spoke the same language. Learning a simplified version of the language of their captors became their life raft on the plantation. The fact that it sounded different from the spoken word of their domineering masters likely made it more palatable. Although language was a part of it, Toussaint was naturally skilled at fitting in with diverse groups of people. After displaying his innate ability to learn, as well as enough bravery to leap onto the back of an untamed stallion, he was assigned the task of caring for the plantation's draft animals, before later being promoted to coachman. There are a couple of reasons that this was an ideal job for a future revolutionary. First, it allowed him to travel to different plantations. The American South was largely successful in its efforts at preventing a large-scale slave revolt by isolating their people from other plantation groups. Thus, uprisings were never coordinated and therefore easier to put down. A coachman would be expected to travel to differing plantations in order to deliver persons, goods, and messages. While business was being taken care of, the enslaved drivers were often overlooked and managed to blend into the background in order to gather and spread news from across the island. The second reason that it was ideal for a revolutionary was that it allowed him to avoid the grueling physical labor and the subsequent corporal punishment of the sugar plantation. To illustrate the cruelty, Gerard points out that slaves who failed to sell enough vegetables on market day were punished with the cotre paquettes. They were tied to four stakes, suspended just above the ground, and then whipped mercilessly. 200 years after Columbus, the overlords continued to hold tightly to the mistaken belief that cruelty increased productivity. Considering that his childhood nickname was Sickly Stick, his avoidance of the fields may have allowed for his survival. Although he personally avoided the worst of it, Toussaint was fully cognizant of the violence around him. 
writing that the insults, the misery, the tortures, and the flagellations were slavery's daily bread. Life expectancy on the Breda plantation was a mere 37 years young. The third benefit of being named a coachman was that it brought him into close contact with the highest social class within the colony, the so-called Big Whites. We don't know a ton about Toussaint's life as a slave, but we do know that from cradle to grave he was a dedicated Catholic. His desire to hold on to dogma continually put him at odds with the French revolutionaries in Paris who worked overtime in order to destroy the Catholic Church's hold on Haiti's motherland. Historian C.L.R. James writes that Toussaint was devout and truly enlightened to the concept that Christian universalism represented the great hope of mankind. He was steadfast in his efforts to attend Catholic Mass. He evangelized to his friends, befriended priests, and at every opportunity opposed voodoo, the competing Christian faith in Haiti. That's right, few understand that Haiti is a syncretic faith, which combines worship of Jesus Christ with traditional African religions. It originated in the Alada region, the ancestral homeland of Toussaint Louverture. Voodoo had a far larger influence in the Haitian Revolution than Catholicism. The 1791 revolt began at a voodoo ceremony, and Haitians' ability to utilize the spiritual aspects of the faith foreshadowed the powerful 20th century Mau Mau revolt in British-held colonial Kenya. The religion is far more than voodoo dolls depicted by Hollywood as its main focus is rooted in ancestral remembrance, nature, healing, and justice. It is a spiritual faith where adherents seek to feel God through folklore dances more than understand God by reading ancient texts. That doesn't mean that the faith is all sunshine and roses, as some slaves would kill their own infants to spare them the life of misery. They felt that it was a mercy, as their faith taught that death would allow the child to rejoin their ancestors in heaven. Additionally, Haitian folklore held that the dead haunted their relatives as zombies if they were not properly buried. In fact, it was from this period of Haiti's history that the concept of zombies originated. The Atlantic reveals to us that the zombie myth has been widely appropriated by American pop culture in a way that whitewashes its origins and turns the undead into a platform for escapist fantasy. The original brains-eating fiend was a slave not to the flesh of others, but to his own. The zombie archetype as it appeared in Haiti and mirrored the inhumanity that existed there from 1625 to around 1800 was a projection of the African slave's relentless misery and subjugation. Haitian slaves believed that dying would release them back to Ian Guinea, literally Guinea or Africa in general, a kind of afterlife where they could be free. Though suicide was common among slaves, those who took their own lives wouldn't be allowed to return to Ian Guinea. Instead, they'd be condemned to skulk the Hispaniola plantations for eternity. Undead slaves at once denied their own bodies and yet trapped inside them as soulless zombies. The people of Haiti have held on to such beliefs as another Atlantic article goes on to repeat a popular saying on the island, which claims that Haiti is 90% Catholic, 10% Protestant, and 100% Voodoo. By clinging to his Catholic faith, Toussaint chose the difficult path as his antagonism towards Voodoo made his road to lead a populist uprising even more strenuous. To illustrate the challenge, Note that he was the only person out of the 152 slaves in Haute de Cap to be described as devout on a plantation register.
Toussaint's first legal owner died in 1752. Two years later, her three children divided her estate by drawing lots, and his life was passed on to Pantelon de Breda, Jr., who served within France's navy. This wasn't uncommon in Haiti, as white Frenchmen viewed the island not as a home, but as just another place to get rich before returning to France. This was best exemplified by the fact that they built virtually no schools on the island, preferring instead to send their children to be schooled in France. Their chronic absenteeism meant that whites only represented 5% of the colony's population. Gerard reveals that for slaves like Louvatour, the most noteworthy aspect of the Breda's distant lives is that they had children and then died. Each birth and each death raised the possibility that a sale would divvy up their human assets. A burial certificate discovered in an obscure French archive in 2011 revealed for the first time the existence of Toussaint's first wife, Cécile. Unfortunately, their two offspring both passed away at a young age. Gerard expresses disbelief that Toussaint managed to marry not once, but twice, as Haiti was a terrible place to raise a family. The imbalanced sex ratio made it difficult for men to find a spouse, and disease, overwork, natural disasters, and war meant that deaths far exceeded births. An owner's death could break apart one family at any time. A master could rape one's wife and daughters with impunity. One of the things that distinguished Toussaint from his peers was his insistence in following the Catholic's European model of family. This didn't mean that he remained faithful, however, as he fathered at least 16 children, many of whom were illegitimate. Many of those children went on to form the backbone of the revolution. Tragically, Toussaint outlived 11 of his 16 offspring. Imported diseases hit his portion of the island, including smallpox outbreaks in 1772, 78, 85, and 87. The infectious illness claimed 7 to 14% of the enslaved population. The colony had a negative population growth rate between 1 to 5% per year. Despite this, the black population of Haiti rose as a result of the fresh imports brought in each year. In 1774, disease claimed the lives of his parents, promoting Toussaint to the head of his remaining family at the age of 30. Two years later, a baptismal certificate for Toussaint's goddaughter identified him as a free citizen of Haiti. Like most of his pre-revolutionary years, we know virtually nothing about how he obtained his freedom, the odds of which were less than 1%. Gerard tells us that less than 11% of all manumissions freed blacks, even though they formed the majority of the slave population. In simpler terms, Louvatore somehow won the lottery. In the historian's estimation, the best that we can tell is that he earned his freedom by forging a special bond with a big white. Able to chart his own course, he did as all other Haitians did, enslaved others in order to make money. Now freed, he purchased his first slave, a man named Jean-Baptiste, before later purchasing the rights to his wife Cecile and her brother, another coachman on the Breda plantation. Incredibly, the couple also had to pay for the purchase of their children, purchasing Toussaint Jr. in 1778 and finally freeing Gabriel in 1785. With his family free, the coachman was finally able to establish the connections necessary to become a revolutionary leader as constant trips into the city of Cap allowed him to network with white priests, mixed-raced freedmen, and other manumitted ex-slaves. Society on the colony was made up of three groups, whites, biracial persons of color, and blacks. Upon becoming free, Toussaint attempted to mimic the white man's model of obtaining wealth 
namely purchasing land and workers to exploit. But by the 1760s, the theories of scientific racism had reached the shores of the Americas. Girard explains that the word race did not even exist in the French language until the 15th century, and even then it often referred to one's class background rather than the color of one's skin. Racism began as a man-made historical phenomenon in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, when French authorities purposefully fostered tensions between free whites and free people of color for fear that they might unite in a common bid for independence. The result was that each social group looked with harsh negativity at the rung beneath them, and Toussaint, as a newly freed black, found himself just slightly above the lowest portion of the ladder. Thus, even after obtaining freedom, every interaction with whites became fraught with danger. The American Revolution broke out in 1776, threatening to disrupt the island's trade. The French bulked up their military forces, allowing more than 1,500 of the island's inhabitants to enlist. This included both whites and free people of color who served in segregated units. Many of the men trained for this conflict would find themselves bearing arms again in the 1791 revolution. Louvatore ignored the siren's call to serve in the military, instead opting to rent a coffee estate and its 13 slaves. Those 13 individuals were all members of one family and included Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the first president of an independent Haiti. The timing of his investment couldn't have been worse, as British naval blockades designed to strangle the growing American movement for independence caused coffee prices to plummet. Worse, a hurricane left behind a trail of devastation across the region. His venture into entrepreneurship lasted for less than a year and resulted in his bankruptcy. Without the financial means to survive, Louvatore was forced to return to the Breda plantation, and resume his old duties, even appearing on the plantation's work rolls as though he had never been freed at all. When it rains, it often pours, and the clouds over Toussaint's head in 1780 resulted in a torrential downpour, as his wife was lured away from their marriage by the promise of 1,800 livres, along with a new house. Without his wife by his side, his family slowly disintegrated. First to go was his son-in-law, who passed away in 1784. He was followed into the great beyond by his firstborn son, Toussaint Jr., in 1785. Soon after, his other son, Gabriel, disappeared, never to be heard from again. Stricken with grief, Louvatore continued to handle the animals needed to turn a profit from the island's sugar cane but he was in a foul mood, naming his horses Treason, Money's Good, Let's See, Governor, and Master. Things finally began to change for the better in the latter portion of 1785, when he married his second wife, Suzanne. The two had begun a relationship seven years earlier, while he was still married to his first wife. Suzanne Simone Baptiste was a laundress on the plantation. The marriage came after she had already given birth to two biracial children. The couple would go on to have two children of their own, each of whom were identified as slaves on the Breda rolls. Gerard writes that their continued bondage underscores the extent to which he navigated two worlds. He was a freedman who had rented slaves but he was now raising an enslaved family on the plantation of his former master. His prospects looked incredibly poor. But within five years, the Haitian Revolution will have begun, and it will bring the former slave-turned-bankrupt coffee farmer to the pinnacle of power on the island. 
We'll tell the story of that rise in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.